I'm glad to be here this morning. Colin and Holly are some of my favorite people. They are tremendous servants, and uh, you all are lucky, uh, as I know they are lucky, to be in this great match at this great church here, Greenville Oaks. I've been in Dallas for ministry before, south of here and north of here, and it's great to be in Allen. Um, I want to start with just a story about a couple that were attending their Thanksgiving meal at the wife's aunt's house. And um, the husband and wife are driving over there. The wife tells the husband, says, okay, my aunt's very hospitable, and, and she's, she's gracious. She has a large table. She's very hospitable. Uh, she's ordered some of the food, and some of the food that she attempts to make, she's not the best cook. She's not the best uh, baker. And so I just need you to be nice. I need you to be kind with anything you say about her cooking. She says, got it. You know, like husbands do, message received. So they, they go throughout the meal. They're there. They're partaking in the feast, and everything's going okay, you know, mild conversation. Then the desserts come. And, you know, there's a variety of desserts there, pies of every kind, and there's one dessert that the aunt claims to have made, and it must look like Aunt Bethany's green, you know, thing from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you know, with the catnip on top. And it's getting passed around, and people are eating it, taking one bite, and trying to, you know, to get into their napkin. But the husband takes a whole bite, finishes the whole part of his portion. He looks at the ant, and he says, wow, that... That was just delicious. I must say, that's one of the best desserts I've ever had. Night ends, go back in the car, about to start the car, the husband's about to drive off, and the wife just smacks him in the arm and the chest. And she says, well, you know, I wanted you to be kind to my aunt, but I didn't want you to lie. And he said, no, 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 I told the truth. Did you not hear me? I said, I must say that this was the most delicious dessert I've ever had. Now, I tell you that bad preacher joke for this purpose. You're going to find yourself, if you haven't already in this holiday season, around certain tables or holiday parties or family gatherings where, yeah, there may be some funny food that we're invited to uh, partake in and enjoy, but there's also quite a bit of conversation, quite a bit of dialogue that's happening where sometimes people aren't saying exactly what they should be saying. Sometimes we're speaking falsely or you hear false things, and there's just a lot of awkward conversations that happen. Maybe you've already experienced one of those in the last few days and you wish you had a do-over, but they're coming. They abound. And so when Colin had said, hey, there's this Sunday, we're kind of in between some things before we ramp up. And I thought, okay, let's talk about, let's talk about communication. Let's talk about truthfulness this morning. So I want to invite you to this Leviticus 19 text. It's a really interesting text. We're going to kind of, kind of marry it with a New Testament text in just a moment. So Leviticus 19, Um, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A few months back, I'm with a co-minister, and we're over visiting um, a member at our church that was kind of near the end of his life, and he's telling us some stories, recounting some stories for us. And they were great, sweet stories. And every few moments when something would come into his mind, and he would chase a little rabbit trail, and I thought, okay, how long is this rabbit trail going to go? And he would catch himself and say, at any rate, and he could reorient himself back on the, the path and continue with his story. 
And I noticed that over the course of this 30, 45 minutes that we're there listening to stories, at any rate, at any rate, and it would, it would center him back on. And if you pay attention to how we converse, you'll notice there are things that we say. Like his grandchildren at our church, they would say things in their conversations, either texting or verbal, where they would say things like, yada, 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 I'm talking, I'm talking. Well, to be honest, this is how I really feel. And they just, we, we have this tendency in younger generations to insert this phrase, to be honest, in the middle of our sentences. And this really confuses me because I don't know what to do with the first part of what you just told me. So this is the true part, and this is the not true part, or the question part. I don't really know. Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, the creators of Seinfeld, were having a conversation a few a few years ago, and they talked about this one particular phrase similar to to be honest, but it's a different one. It was called, um, well, having said that. And if you're a scholar or some type of real eloquent professional academic, you know how to use that transitional phrase well. In fact, you might be walking through some some statistics or some other point, and then you say, having said that, and it sort of unfolds this way for you, but that's not how most of us use this phrase. In fact, most of us use this phrase as, if you even look it up, as a way to completely negate what we just said. So for instance, Larry David's example is as as a stand-up comedian, if he walked into an auditorium and he said, you people are a bunch of morons. Having said that, I'm glad to be here tonight. It kind of negates what he just said. Which one is it? Which is true? You can't really ever lose. And so in that spirit, having said that, I want us to look at this Leviticus 19 text and think about how do we converse truthfully one with another? There is a phrase that jumps off the page for me in this text, and it's not one you might normally talk about in church. In fact, we really don't. It's the word rebuke. In fact, it's it's rebuke your neighbor, frankly, in Leviticus 19. And I get real uncomfortable when we start talking with that kind of word and that kind of language because it's just not something I'm, I'm comfortable with or used to. Rebuke shows up quite a bit, though, in the scriptures, and it's not always bad. For instance, in Mark chapter 8, uh, there's this conversation where Jesus is telling his uh, disciples what his purpose is going to be, about how he's going to go to the cross and give himself sacrificially for the world, and this is what Messiah will do. And Peter, verse 32, Jesus speaks plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he then rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I find this interesting that there's this truthfulness exchange. Even though Peter's information was wrong, he, he still tried to rebuke Jesus in an honorable way and vice versa. Second Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's interesting that right here in teaching, this very public thing that, that we just even came out of our Bible classes and these groups, that you have this, this joining of the same level, this idea of rebuke. Revelation chapter 3. Those whom I love, God says, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now, my my aim is not to 
try to insert this word into your vernacular to where when families are going home today on Sunday, you know, like little children, rebuke, rebuke. You know, it's not, it's not my aim today, but I want us to figure out how to be truthful, how to speak honest. Joseph Grinney is a social scientist and he's written three or four books that are all award-winning books. And he has one of them is called Crucial Conversations. And this is the grid of what he would define as a crucial conversation. He says, anytime you have opposing opinions, high stakes, and strong emotions, you're in a crucial conversation. And if you start to kind of track this, you can see how, how quickly some of us might go turtle shell with one another, or how some of us might go bowl in a china shop with others. But you're in a crucial conversation. And, and the fascinating thing about that triangle is that it shows up in the story of Scripture as early as the book of Genesis. Chapter 4, it happens in the, in, the, in the creation story as well with Adam and Eve. But in chapter 4, we have two brothers. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. Interesting that we get that detail. Then the Lord said to Cain, "Um, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And then this is a haunting part. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Very next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Now, this is a story about first fruits and offerings. Yes. But there's also a conversation. There's also an exchange. God with Cain. Sadly, I don't see an exchange of Cain and Abel. Like I know they're brothers. They had to have talked at some point throughout the course of their life. But I wish there could have been an exchange about why Cain was so angry. I mean, God can talk to Cain about it, and it doesn't take. But if Cain and Abel, I wish they could have had a crucial conversation. Because sin was lurking at Cain's door, and it overtook him. And we need to think about the realities that if we don't talk things out, if we don't talk it out, then we're going to act it out. If we don't talk out the toxins and the poisons from our life, they are going to get in our bloodstream and we are going to act them out and do things that we will probably regret. Richard Rohr, one of our great thinkers of the day, says, you either transform your pain or you transfer it. Hurt people often hurt people. And this is what we see in the Cain and Abel story. He is hurt He's angry, he's downcast, and he just, he never says anything about it, and it all comes out, the rage on his brother. And we have the first murder. Now, I've been spending some time in some of our local high schools there in Bryan. I've been been doing some subbing. It's kind of fun. Uh, It's a humbling job. Teachers, I know I got your back. Teacher tired is a whole other thing. I'm with you, okay? I kind of want to throw up this like solidarity thing with you, okay? Like y'all are doing amazing things in the schools. I've been subbing 
And I, I, there is no more joy for high school students than to see a sub at the door there. And I'm telling you, they love it. And then they immediately begin to think on not only what can I get away with in the course of this, but can I actually get away from this class? Because I'm a high school student. I might be able to drive. And I noticed very early on that, you know, if a student asked me to go to the restroom, um, all it took was one. There was a student that, you know, I was very generous. They were kind. They were so polite. Sir, mister, might I use the restroom? Yes, you can. The pass is over there. And I looked away. I looked back again. And they, they, had, they had left. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15. They never came back. And they had taken their backpack. They took everything with them. And they were gone. And so I learned as a sub, I was like, okay, if you're going to use the restroom, you need to go to the nurse. I said, what are you leaving here in the class so I know you're coming back? And sometimes, I don't have to say anything. A student is very polite. They get it. They leave something from, they, they know. But other times, I have to have a crucial conversation where the emotions are high. Maybe they need to go see someone. Maybe they need to use the restroom, whatever that is. And yet, there's this tension of, they, who are you? I don't know you. They don't know me. Am I going to leave something or not? You're going to leave your phone with me? You're going to leave your charger? What are you going to leave with me? Sadly, sometimes I had to write up some students before, and that's never fun. But, but, but I'm wondering, even with total strangers, what is our level of honesty or rebuke? Moreover, with brothers and sisters, moreover, with family members, have we lost our ability to be honest and to receive honesty from someone else? It's like we've all bought into this lie from A Few Good Men, the great Rob Reiner film where uh, Kathy, played by Tom Cruise, goes to Jack Nicholson, Colonel Nathan Jessup, and, you know, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You know, like we're so worried about offending one another that we don't ever really say anything close to the truth. We say half-truths, having said that, and then we soften it. We never say anything close to what really needs to be said, or we never hear what we need to hear. Joseph Grinney says, the myth that we can't both tell the truth and keep friends is at the heart of most of our dysfunction. We wouldn't want to offend someone. And so uh, his son, Sam, he actually decided to do an experiment because his son, Sam, had had this fascination. He said, how early in life do we avoid telling the truth because we don't want to offend or hurt someone? And so he did a little experiment with brownies and kids his age, and paying and bribing. Watch. We all know adults stink at talking about tough things, but how about little kids? Here's my experiment. Feed kids wretched brownies, then see if they'll tell you the truth, especially when they think it might hurt your feelings. First, I made the brownies. Lots of chocolate, eggs and flour, but instead of sugar, I put in salt. Lots of salt. There's no way they could like these better. Now I recruit kids of various ages for a taste test. I tell them I want to compare ordinary brownies to my special brownies. My dear grandmother's special recipe. My dear dead grandmother's special recipe. Then I give them a dollar for being such a big help. My parents always taught me that if you want someone to like you, give them money. 
Okay, here goes. First, they ate the yummy sugar brownies. Next, they eat the salt bricks. Watch this girl. She can hardly keep from gagging. And now for the crucial moment. Will they tell me the truth and possibly offend me? I asked them to point to the brownies they like best. No surprise that some tried to spare my feelings. But watch, even the one who gagged? And how about really little kids? But do you want to know what they really thought? Here, guys, I have leftovers. Does anybody want seconds? Yeah, let's go to lunch. Uh, okay, let's go to our New Testament text, Matthew 19. Matthew 19. It's fascinating what we will say and what we won't say. Matthew 19, so um, this, this is a famous story recorded in three of the Gospels of, of a real well-going, church-going kind of young lad who's followed all the rules. I mean, he checks all the lists. He's got it. All the boxes, all of it. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to the man, Well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the man said to Jesus, um, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now, this is a a story that uh, has tremendous meaning. It's bittersweet in so many ways, especially when you consider the dialogue that happens after that. But I want us to consider this story in light of the Leviticus 19 text see where we find. So as Jewish rabbis interpret the Leviticus 19 text, they say there's really only two interpretive moves that you have. All right. The first is that um, at its most basic level in that text we read, all right, rebuke your neighbor, frankly, you are to confront your fellow person with the grievances that you have against them. That, that, should, be, that should be as easy as it goes. But in the second, uh, the second move that often we go to is it's not enough just to confront them. Sometimes we want to win. We want to have an I gotcha moment. We want to chastise evildoers. We want to shame them in the hopes of bringing them back to uh, repentance so they can see the error of their ways and be right, and I'm going to show them that I was the one that was right. The rabbis talk about how the whole community has this duty to... to, um, to be a part of the reconciliation of a person who might have committed a trespass, right? But if there is a silent harboring, it leads way to personal resentment and hatred. 
And here's the, here is the Old Testament story that they often cite in relationship to this Leviticus 19. They cite 2 Samuel 13, two of King David's sons. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon, his brother, because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. Notice that there's no exchange, no crucial conversation, silence. Some of y'all, we play the silent treatment. I'm with you. We play the silent treatment on purpose. Like we're using it as a, as a strategy to win or something. But what we're doing, when we do that, we are harboring this resentment. If we don't talk it out, we're going to act it out. And so what happens here in this story with this rich young ruler and Jesus? What does Jesus do here in this exchange that they have with all the laws and all the commands? What does Jesus do? Well, does Jesus seek to have an I gotcha moment with this guy? Is Jesus silent with him? Does Jesus resent him? Does Jesus want to embarrass him? Does Jesus have a, yeah, yeah, you did all these things, but now having said that, here's what I need you to do. In fact, most of the time when Jesus gives corrections to the laws, and they're actually fulfillments of laws, you notice that? You have heard it said this, but now I say this. It's a fulfillment continuation of how the law is meant to be lived and interpreted. It's not false. He's pulling the truth forward. What's interesting is that the rich young ruler is having a having said that moment. Yeah, I've done these things. Yeah, 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 I've done all that. What next? Having said all that stuff, yeah, 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 that's all good. Anything else, Jesus? I mean, what's really at the heart of all this? And Jesus, according to Mark's account of this story, does something so profound. In one verse, it says he looks at the rich young ruler, and he loved him. And then he levels with him. What it look like for us to do that in our conversations around the table or when it's awkward with people, maybe even just to look up from our device and to look someone in the eye and to convey that love and to level with them. Everything we're saying, not half speak, not to be honest, having said that moments, but just the truth as awkward or shaking as we might be just to get it out. Even if it's hard, I think you'll find that the scriptures have your back. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 5, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Like what courage it takes from someone who we're related to or or even a mentor or someone who sees something we don't see, consider the source for them to speak that into our lives. What courage it took. So let's receive that well rather than the song of fools. Proverbs 27, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Love that. Like, I'll take my wounds from the people who are my people because they have my best interests, and I want to have theirs. And so Jesus, in this this stranger who is his neighbor, Jesus' rebuke, this frank rebuke, it is holy, it is wise, it is not concealed, it is out in the open, and it is loving. And this is where the turn happens when we're going to speak truth. This is it. Because you and I, we have been in church or we've been in family units or job environments where we've heard a lot of truth and it hurt and it wasn't always loving. And people wanted us to just accept it. It's the bitter truth. It's the bitter truth. But, but we're called to a higher standard. 
Paul says in Ephesians, as he writes to this church in Ephesus, he says, speaking the truth in love, rather. There's a way you can speak the truth in harsh. How about try speaking the truth in love? We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Paul's saying that you're going to speak. You can do the silent treatment, but that's going to create this resentment, and you're going to act out harm. But when you speak, speak truth. But I want you to speak it in in a loving way that forms you like Christ. Speaking the truth, number one, there's so much falseness out there, but but speaking the truth by itself shows respect. It's hard. It shouldn't be that hard, but, but man, it's becoming harder and harder to hear the truth and speak the truth. Speak the truth and show respect. But when we speak the truth in love, it shows Christ. It shows Jesus every time. And if we're going to be um, a, a people that are formed like Jesus, formed in grace and truth, we should want that. Joseph Grinney says, I believe that the measure of my soul is my capacity to love imperfect people. Bob Goff, one of my favorite people to like look to and say, how is Bob Goff loving people? <laughs> Bob Goff says, um, love difficult people, love imperfect people everywhere you go. Why? Because you're one of them. It's kind of that measure you use kind of thing, right? How do we love people well? We're not willing to speak the truth to them and speak it in a loving, honest way. Okay, we're almost at lunch. It's the holiday season. I'll end with an illustration that's kind of snacky. Maybe you'll carry this through for the holidays. I love how certain snacks get transformed at the holiday time and no other time else in the, in the whole year. For instance, pretzels, just loopy, salty pretzels. I don't even care about them. They're cheap. You know, they, they get somehow magically transformed into these delicious concoctions. You know, we take almond bark and chocolate and we melt them and we dip these pretzels in there and we decorate them all up and they become so fancy and they're quite addicting. You can't just have one. I mean, we're giving them as gifts. They're everywhere, right? It's a lot like the truth. Like the truth is that, is that pretzel in its solo purest form. It's salty. We're called to be salt. And it's just there. It's plain. It's what we start with. Jesus says, I want you to be a people who would speak truth in love, which means that whatever I say, it is, it is dipped, it is coated, it is saturated, it is decorated up completely with love, and it's sweet. We've got the salty and the sweet. And we'd be a people that speak truth, but speak it lovingly. Can I pray for us? And then we'll, we'll have a, a benediction. Father, thank you so much for being a good, good father, as we have declared this morning. Thank you for dealing with us truthfully, (laughs) honestly, lovingly. You do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you give us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. Father, may we take this measure that has been used towards us and may we extend it to the world. May we not be a people that are afraid to speak truth to those we love, those who are difficult. And when we do, may it be loving. May it it have the aroma of Christ in all things. We love you. Help us to this end. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.